Let's pray together. Father, we sing for you our good. You are great. You define us. And you redefine us. You've made us and you keep remaking us. Father, we testify that the resurrection of Jesus is alive and well in our lives. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Find glory in this place. Receive our thoughts and our confessions. Receive our words and our prayers and our praise and our adoration for you are worthy of all of it and more. Father, let us hear you now. We know you have so much yet to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In Davidson, North Carolina, there's a pastor by the name of Reverend David Buck. Last year, he commissioned an artist named Timothy Schmaltz out of Toronto to to come up with a statue of Jesus to put in front of their church for everyone to be able to see. The statue that the artist Timothy Schmaltz came up with was this one. A bronze casting of Jesus in this affluent neighborhood in Davidson, North Carolina. Reverend David Buck didn't tell his church he was going to do this, so when the statue went up, people were all driving by, realizing there's some homeless dude sleeping in the front yard of their church. One church member became so concerned that she called the police. She called the cops on Jesus. She called the cops on Jesus. The Son of Man who has no place to lay His head is so unwelcome and unfamiliar on church property. We're afraid that if He looks a little bit like a vagrant or the person He actually was during His ministry, how far have we become removed from the real person of Jesus that when He actually looks like He shows up in church, we call the cops on Him? There's something that happens in the life of the the body of Christ, there's something that happens in each one of our lives that over time, if we are not moving outward, if we are not moving in mission for God, if we are not having our hearts broken for the things beyond ourselves, we tunnel in on ourselves. We become our own worst enemy. One of my favorite writers, a man and pastor philosopher by the name of Jeff Cook, says it like this. He says, the journey to hell is not a downward movement. It is an inward one. You know, we always spatially think of like hell as you go down to hell. I love how he explains this, that the actual deepest movement into hell is when we tunnel in on ourselves, when we go inward, when we become more selfish, when our pride begins to take over, when we are more important than others, when we're not living lives that are dying to ourselves and living for God and living for others in the world around us. The journey to hell is not a downward movement. It's an inward one. June 25, last summer I was going on a, on a guy's camping retreat in Wisconsin and we drove through the little town of Wyville, Wisconsin and when I saw this on the side of the road I had to stop and take a picture because there is a story there. My guess it is has something to do either with worship styles, women in office or the color of carpet. 
Why else would churches split? My, my biggest concern is this. I think every Christian who attends either get this St. Michael's or St. Peter's in the same denomination knows the story of why that is the case. Why would two churches... I mean, they're not like strategically entering a new neighborhood where they're doing ministry, right? Like this isn't a geographical strategic initiative on, on behalf of the church. Like something happened. I can deduce a couple of things from the pictures. First of all, I can tell the church on the left was the one that was built later because their steeple is higher. <laughs> but praise the Lord, through the gift of unity, they were able to share the cost of a driveway. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> like there is a story here somewhere that says something that, about the church today that is so wrong. We keep splitting over all these different things, and yet I know every Christian who attends those churches knows the story, and we think the reasons are all significant. But what I keep wondering is, when I sat there, everybody who doesn't believe in God and doesn't go to church and doesn't go to one of those two churches who lives in Wyville, Wisconsin, and drives by, what do they think? What are we saying to the rest of the world? How is that a witness to Christ? I think the people in Wyville, Wisconsin could think of several other things that these churches could have spent money on in their community. Something beyond themselves. See, when we start spending all of our... And I've, I've noticed this now. In pastoring two different churches, there's like this internal vortex, like this sucking sound that exists inside church where we like tunnel in on ourselves. And, and, and we start to spend money on ourselves. And we start to become preoccupied with ourselves. And we like hanging out with people who look like us and act like us and listen to the same music as us. This is why you gravitate to the friends that you do. This is why you gravitate to the part of town that you live in. We like commonality. We'll talk a whole lot about diversity. But at the end of the day, we want to be with people who don't challenge and shape us. And so the church just keeps splitting and splitting and splitting so we can get to the place where we're with a few people that we don't disagree with anymore. And we've eliminated the idea that tension is actually where people grow. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that in your guys' generation, we're going to have lives that are excited about being living beyond ourselves. And not just for the church and in and of itself, but that our energies are actually to serve and move beyond its walls. Because at the end of the day, we were made for mission. And this is what I've begun to realize. Is that when the church and when our own lives become about other people... I realized this for the first time last year. God actually commanded us in the Great Commission to go out because if we don't, we will tunnel in. So maybe, just maybe, God actually gave us the Great Commission to save the nations and tell the world about Christ not only for their sake, but even for our own sake. Because every single law that God ever gave us is a gift to us. You keeping the law is not something that you give back to God. God's laws are all a gift us. And even mission, even living beyond ourselves, is God's gift to us to save us from ourselves. I found this cartoon a little while back in Leadership Magazine. The pastor is booting everybody out and says, gee, why is everybody leaving the church? There's all these commentaries on millennials and your guys' generation and why people are leaving the church in droves these days. And of course, the implicit message is, well, the church itself is actually driving them out. And I wonder if sometimes that maybe that's actually true. I'll show you another picture yet. Sort of my, this is my critique of the church tonight. 
Next one there. Okay, so I'm in Spearfish, South Dakota last summer, driving across the country. We stop in a little restaurant, and as I walk in the door, right, normally they have little vending machines, or my kids are asking me for quarters because they want to do, like, the little claw thing where they grab some ridiculously useless stuffed animal and drop it down and blah, blah, blah. They had a pencil vending machine. Like, did these guys do a study of their neighborhood and, like, find out what are the people of Spearfish, South Dakota really into? I mean, are they all really into pencils? When was the last time you went out for dinner and said to yourself, man, if I just had a pencil right now? I wonder sometimes, too, if the things the church keeps dreaming up and believing that the rest of the world wants from us is actually us just talking to ourselves and not actually asking the rest of the world, what is it that you want? What would you like the church to be? God became incarnational in Christ and became what we needed. Not what would have made him comfortable. God became what we needed. Do you have the ability to become what your family needs? What your community needs? What your friends need? What the lonely kid at school needs? The one who's left out? Do you have the ability to become that? Otherwise, we're just peddling a whole bunch of stuff that really isn't useful to anybody. famous classic passage. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together now. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I noticed something specific about these two commandments, right? There's this vertical engagement with God. There's this horizontal engagement with the rest of mankind. But notice that both the movements, the summary of everything that God has asked of us, are two movements that take us out of ourselves. On another situation, Jesus was asked to summarize, right, what discipleship means for the disciples. He's is explaining it to them. Deny yourself, step one. Take up your cross and follow me. But it begins with self-denial. It begins with moving in a love with the Father. It begins with moving for a love for others. Everything God tells us about following Him has to do with becoming a little less preoccupied with ourselves. Usually Jesus, when He's asked a question, answers with a question. This time Jesus just goes simply straight to the point. Apparently this is really important for Him to be able to get across. And again, keep in mind, all of God's laws are not things that we give back to Him to keep an angry God happy with us. Every one of God's laws are for us. And they are gifts. Every single one of us has to be able to be living missionally. And when I say missionally, all I really mean is moving beyond ourselves. Moving more fully into the kingdom. Moving on behalf of other people. You and I are called to live missionally. And I'll give you a couple little summaries on what this looks like. Missional living requires, number one, denying ourselves. That's stage one in discipleship, according to Jesus. Deny yourself. So, pay attention to the fact there's a whole lot of things you're going to want for yourself, that the first step of faith is trusting God that not everything we want for ourselves is actually good for us. We think it is, but God loves us more than we love ourselves. And so we give ourselves over to that process. There's a self-denial involved. And I'm still learning this in life. I had a huge piece of humble pie self-denial taught to me last year. My wife and I have this ministry in Liberia, West Africa. 
And we've been working there for the last seven years. And the pastor who we work with all the time there, a man by the name of Emmanuel Bimba, has truly become my best friend. We spend time on the phone every week together. We've gotten to know each other incredibly well. I trust this man more than anybody else in the world. When the Civil War ended in Liberia, he took 60 kids off the street, some of them clinging to the dead bodies of their parents, and took them all in. No way to care for them, no food, no ability, just believed that if I do what God commands of us, then God will provide. That's it. Anyways, I meet him and we begin this ministry and it's just been one of the most life-giving things I could have ever imagined. But last year, Emmanuel says, Aaron, there's a little girl here at the orphanage who's incredibly sick. You know her. You've seen her many times. She has caustic ingestion syndrome at three years old. She swallowed battery acid and her throat is all the way burned out. It has shrunk all the way down now. We pound food into a paste and massage it down. But every time she gets sick... Her throat swells and she can't swallow anymore. Aaron, she's going to die. And her mom came here as a pregnant teenage mom. She died in complications from childbirth. And since the day Eve was born, I have been her father. In fact, my own daughter was born at the same time. And my wife nursed Eve along with our own child at the same time. And she has grown up here like this. But now she's had this accident. And she will die. But we can't care for her here, and there's no medical ability. This is the second poorest country in the world we're talking about. So Emmanuel says, Aaron, from one brother to another, I need you to adopt my, my daughter. And I'm like, I give the Christian answer. I'm going to need to pray about that. <laughs> Next week, Emmanuel calls back and says, have you made up your mind? Has God spoken to you yet? My wife was all in from the get-go. And I'm like, I don't think I, I need more time to pray about this. And I'm worried, of course, inside that my life is going to be disrupted. We just sold our house and downsized. We changed a bunch of stuff. My wife and I had the talk. We're done having kids. Um, like, we kind of like our family the way it is. But Emmanuel calls me on the phone and says, Aaron, can I be totally frank with you? I said, Sure, we're good friends. You can be honest with me. He said, I don't get you Americans. I said, I'm Canadian. Um, (laughs) It's kind of irrelevant to the rest of the story, but... He says, when I walked through the streets here and I saw children clinging to dead parents, I took them all in and I cared for them because if I knew if I did what was right in God's eyes, he would provide and he would give me what I stood in need of. And now I'm asking you, can you take one child and you're telling me you need time to pray about this? So we have a little girl in our home now named Eve, who is our daughter. And, and that's how we ended up adopting this girl in a country that was closed to adoption, that wouldn't have allowed this. It was just this weird God thing. And I keep finding these times in life where I think I've got our life figured out. And then God just drops this bomb again and again in our lives. And so I'm like, okay, 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 God, I'm going to engage in this act of, you know, you sort of feel like this is charity when we do something for somebody else. That's the word we use for this. And I know this is going to be a ton of work. Since Eva's come home in the last 15 months, she's gone through 43 surgeries in terms of repairing her throat. So this has been a part-time job in our family. And at the beginning, all I saw was the cost, right? Because in discipleship, all you see at the outset is the cost. This little girl has changed my life. She is amazing. 
I cannot believe how much I love this little girl. I cannot believe what a gift she is to me. I didn't even know anything about her really other than a couple little pictures I had on past trips when I had seen her and held her and interacted with her. I didn't know that God was going to make those show up as evidence in court that I had historical ties to this child that would allow me to adopt her. I didn't know any of these things. And God's orchestrating all the while. And what started out as charity has now realized that I'm actually the object of God's charity in this case. I needed Eve. I needed to be changed. I needed to die to my own agenda that I thought I was in control of my life. Because missional living is going to do this to us. It's got to make us deny all of our own impulses and our selfishness and all the things that we think we want in life. Only to realize that once we let it go and let it die, God gives it back to us even better. I have a better family today than I did 24 months ago. I do, and every single person in my family would say that. Is it harder? Yes. But it's richer, it's fuller, it's better. I feel like we're living in part in the kingdom of God in our own home in some new small way. I thought I was being noble and charitable. God showed me I was just really being selfish. We need to deny ourselves. What is God going to ask you to do to give up in terms of what you have in your head you think is what you need in life? Because I want to tell you, hold things loosely. Because God's plans are better than ours. Now every time my plans start getting upset, I'm almost getting to the point spiritually where I kind of get a little bit excited. What are you going to do with this one, God? Almost. Not there yet. Missional living requires getting messy. Missional living always requires... Your life kind of gets messy. There's like extra people start showing up at your dinner table when you take on gifts like hospitality. You have to make room like in your life for other stuff. It's a whole one thing for a bunch of Christians to say we're all pro-life. It's another thing to say, am I so pro-life that I would actually take somebody into my home? I would let them live with me? Like, am I really, really pro-life? Or is that just something I vote for in political candidates when I turn 18 and I'm older? Or something that as Christians in America we make one of the big political issues? Like, am I really pro-life? Because there's a big difference. And one of them involves getting really messy. When I was in seminary, I would have to commute all the way in on buses and what's called the SkyTrain in Vancouver. And I'd go and and I had to stop at this junction point, which is kind of in a shady part of town. And there was always heroin addicts hanging out there panhandling for money. And one day I was standing in line ordering a hot dog from a vendor. And I could just sort of feel like this tugging from the Holy Spirit. Like, buy a hot dog for that guy. And I don't know why, but I did. And I buy this hot dog for this guy, and I go and walk over and talk. He's got this mohawk. He's got tracks all up his arms. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit um, that he got from a prison. Like, I don't even, I didn't think they let you keep it when you get out. But, or he stole it from, I don't know. But he's sitting there panhandling for money with his tracks up his arms. This is his story. And anyways, we, we start talking, and I start becoming intrigued by this kid's story. So anyways, one day he asks me, Hey, you stop and talk to me several different times. Most people walk by. Why do you do that? So I told him about it, the fact that I was kind of going to seminary, and he had no idea what that meant. So I explained it to him. And then I was just about to preach for the first time in my home church. And I was telling him about this, and I was nervous. And he said, well, I'd like to come. And I'm thinking, uh, you wouldn't like it. Like, somebody wants to come find out about Jesus? Like, is he welcome there or isn't he? So I figured, of course he should come. So I invite Eric to come, and he comes on the first Sunday I'm ever preaching, 
and he's sitting in the back, and he's just sort of taking it all in. This is a very traditional CRC church, okay? And I get done preaching, and I got dressed up that day, and I had the tie on because I had to buy one, and... And I get done preaching, and I'm like this super nervous kid, right? Like, somebody tell me I didn't totally botch this entire thing. And I'm standing all nervous as soon as church is done, up front, my hands in my pockets, and, and, and just, you know, all fidgety. And I see the elders coming down, right? Like the leaders in the church. And I'm waiting for an elder of the church to come down and give me some words of affirmation. And the chair of our church council comes down and says, Two things, son. Slow down and get your hands out of your pockets. Not really the Jesus I was looking for in that moment. Eric comes bounding down the aisle in his orange jumpsuit. <laughs> comes right up. And the, by now the elders have gathered around, right? And they're all just sort of sitting there and they're formally what they were going to say. Eric comes right in the middle of everybody's, Dude, that was effing awesome! <laughs> and then he rattled off a whole lot of expletives right in front of the elders of our church. But why is, it, why is it that the heroin addict had a greater ability to be Jesus to me in that moment than my own church elders did? Why is it that the one person in the room who needed Jesus more than anybody else was the one who felt the least welcome in that place? I mean, is the church still a place for sinners or isn't it? We get so good at constructing our own little faces and not letting other people see our scars. You guys, these things have to come down. We've got to get more honest with each other. This is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. That is what we are together. We are a bunch of broken people in need of grace. That is who we are. I am no better than Eric and I am no more loved by God than he is. Eric stands in need of truth and the grace of Christ, doesn't he? There's been lots of people I've gotten to get involved with in ministry over time or people who have crossed paths where we don't always have a beautiful ending. But Eric's story does have a beautiful ending. In fact, to this day, he counsels kids coming off the street after giving his life to Christ. And um, it's just an amazing story in his life. However, here's the funny thing. It all started because I got to buy him a hot dog. Like, that wasn't what I was learning in seminary, right? My systematic theology wasn't coming through in that moment. I didn't have to argue him in. I bought him hot dogs. And then he asked if he could come to church. Like, that's not how we draw it up on paper. But I think that's what love has the ability to do. And I think we have to be willing to get tugged and pushed by the Holy Spirit in different places. And you've got to get used to learning to that little still small voice inside of you that's giving you nudges. And I want to tell you that at the beginning they're always scary, but they become so life-giving when we let God have His way within us. I love Eric. I love that I got to meet Eric. Eric is a cool story. Getting to watch that, getting a front row view to watch what God was going to do in his life, is one of the coolest things I've ever gotten to experience. Don't get me wrong, there are a ton of times where I have botched the Holy Spirit's nudgings in my life. I like telling that story because it's the one time I got it right. It's kind of fun that way. But, guys, these things, little bit by bit by bit, we kind of learn to fall in step with Him over time. Missional living requires a grace-based culture. 
If someone were to walk into your church, come up to the front and tell everybody they had a closet addiction to alcohol and nobody knew about it. Somebody walked to the front of your church one day and said, I've been living in an affair for the last while and it's killing me and I don't want this in my life anymore. What would we do? If you found something out that was really sketchy about somebody else you knew at school, what would you do? And I wonder if we truly have a grace-based culture. For all the ways we use this word in churchy circles, do we really believe in it? Because Jesus said there's even greater rejoicing in heaven when even one sinner repents. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we were in church and all you had to do, like, if, if you were feeling crappy about something in your life, you could come up front and just sort of tell everybody, and then the whole church would be like, woohoo! Beautiful! So, like, we actually look like heaven in that moment. Because that's what Jesus says is happening when even one sinner comes to repentance. So, why are we not looking like heaven? Why are we not establishing a grace based culture? You guys, amongst your friends, and amongst your circles, and in your dating relationships, and inside your homes, and with your siblings. Begin to start this process already of being free to be able to come to people with your sins, with the things that you're struggling with, and be able to have honest and open conversations. Grace-based culture. That's what we're shooting for. Missional loving requires present tense testimony. And what I mean by that is this. You have to be able to start talking about your faith life exactly where it's at. Doubts, questions, everything. Normally, we don't ever let anybody have this stage to speak in front of Christians until every verb they tell in their testimony is in the past tense. Right? You've got to get all cleaned up first, and then we'll let you talk. Amidst, amidst all of ourselves, you guys... Nobody ever gets there. I haven't arrived. I got all kinds of sin and crap in my life. I'm not always a good person. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. I got lots of flaws. We all do. But we need to stop pretending like Christians are people who've got it all together. That's not what makes somebody. We are not better than anybody else. We just simply know who loves us. That's the difference. So, we need to be able to just... Talk openly and honestly with people. Because if you ever have something that's bugging you in life, if you have a sin that gets you, and you want to beat it first, so then you can tell everybody, well, three months ago I was struggling with. That three months never really comes. We are set free in being able to voice the things that are owning us and hurting us. And finally, missional living requires nothing extra. We've got to stop piling all this extra stuff on top. My favorite thing about doing this ministry with people in Liberia is how simple and beautiful their faith is. Somebody puts their hand up for prayer request and says, my um, daughter is really sick. And everybody just walks over and prays for healing because that's what the Bible says you're supposed to do. And so that's what they do. And everything is just really seems to be straightforward. I went to a Thanksgiving service there last year. And we're in the middle of church. Thanksgiving service. Okay, these are some of the poorest people in the world. They have like nothing. Thanksgiving service lasted four hours. Thankfulness after thankfulness. The pastor says at one point in time, anybody who has a song of Thanksgiving in your heart, you come on up and sing for us. And so one after another, people would come, and they had terrible voices. And they would sing these songs. Finally, this one guy comes up. He's got a decent voice. And he gets up, and he sings a song. And I'm thinking, finally, he's not bad. The pastor comes up, interrupts him, and says, you, go sit back down. You did not come up here because that is a song of thanksgiving. You came up here because you like the sound of your voice. 
Go sit down and when you want to give God thanks for something, you come back and sing for us. I was like, wow. And afterwards, I'm sitting with him and all the elders and I said, Emmanuel, how do you, how do, you do that? Like, if I did that at our church in America, that family would never come back to church the next week, right? Like, you would feel embarrassed. And they all looked at me like I was some sort of freak. Like I just didn't get it. And then Emmanuel says, Aaron, if your job as a pastor in America is not to speak the truth, then what is it? I'm usually a pretty talkative guy. I had nothing to say to that. What do you say? It just seemed to be so simple and obvious. Our faith is not complicated, but it is hard. Denying yourself and your own impulses, living for others, living for the Lord, this is hard stuff, but it's life-giving. That's the path of discipleship. And it's two steps forward and one step back, and it's beating a sin for a while and then stumbling again back into it. And it's going through grace and using up more grace and then becoming more of a Christian and still needing more grace because you realize you still have sins and crap you've got to deal with. Christians ought to burn through grace like a rocket burns through rocket fuel. That's what Dallas Willard says. I like that line. I'm burning through a lot of grace. That's part of the ride. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you that you've given us so many laws throughout Scripture and that every one of them is for us. That God, your design has never been to fence us in, but to set us free. God, our hearts have such a hard time trusting you that letting go of controlling our own lives and giving them to you will actually be what we stand in need of. But God, set us free. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to trust you more. To hand everything over so we can be a better witness for you. Father, bless us not with fancy words, but just a great ability to love. In Jesus' name, amen.